Being more creative with the sprouts we sweat. Welcome aboard Sprout One. I'm your host, Dave Algio, Chief Sprout Sweater. Now, this is episode 26, and it's a big sweat, another big sweat, because it's Christmas week, and I wanted to share some additional food for thought and share an interview with somebody who I think is brilliant, Dave Hall, who I met through the Professional Speaking Association. Dave is an expert in encouraging and helping individuals and organizations get more creative and innovative in how they come up with solutions and ideas to challenges and problems and development and growth within life and business. And he has some fun and different and unusual ways of approaching this. So creativity in itself can become pretty mundane if we apply some of the more usual methodologies that that are out there. And how is this relevant to the Sprout Sweater? Well, for many of us, we're seeking to achieve goals. And what we often do is we approach it using past experience, past methodologies and approaches that we've tried and tried or seen others try. And what I want to do is introduce a different way of thinking about it and getting encouraging you to think differently about generating some ideas and solutions to achieving your goals. So creating some new approaches, habits and solutions that can factor into your goal setting and goal getting for want of a better phrase. And Dave Hall, has, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great speaker really enthusiastic and has some really brilliant ideas to share. So on with the show. And as we lift off the pad and before you get into the episode, don't forget, if you find that the demands of life and the meaning of it all is leading you to sleepless nights, tossing and turning with deep and not so deep questions rattling around your head, then hop on over to thesproutsweater.com to gain access to my free Operation Snooze Sleep Improvement Audio Program. Start getting your head back and your shit together so that you can start getting life back on your terms. Sproutsweater.com Hi everyone and welcome to another Sprout Sweater episode. And again, this is a big sweat episode, one in which I speak to an expert, somebody who actually knows what they're talking about, um, and pick their brains. For those of you who are regular listeners, you will know that my shorter episodes are where I'll pose a concept, a tip, or a few ideas. And these longer episodes are where I can pick the brains of an expert, but also show my working out, kind of show the backstory to some of the tips and the tactics that I suggest. So this uh, this month, I have the privilege of Dave Hall attending. And uh, Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing very well indeed. Very well indeed. And looking forward to the conversation and see where it takes us. Yeah, me too. Um, Dave, just so for the benefit of everybody, would you mind just giving a bit of background to um, you, your work, and that kind of thing, and then we'll dive into how it can relate to the Sprout Sweater philosophy. Sure. Uh, my name is Dave Hall. Um, I set up an organisation called the Ideas Centre about 10 years ago, and what we do basically is help organisations understand what happens inside people's heads that locks them in conventional and traditional thinking. There are a whole bunch of things that happen inside our heads. Once you understand why we're trapped in that space, you begin to appreciate how some quite unusual creativity techniques can help you escape from those constraints. And that's what we teach organizations to do. I have to say, although I've mentioned the word creativity, I am not naturally creative by any stretch of the imagination. I am, of course, a fraud as I sit here. I'm a scientist and engineer by training. Uh, The muse never visits me overnight, that's for damn certain. But in previous lives, I stumbled across these techniques and when I was doing some management training, found they worked, took them wherever I went. 
And when I missed a management buyout at my last place under the heading of damn it, I thought, damn it, I'm not getting any younger. If everyone were to do my own thing, now's the time to do it. So I set up the Idea Centre as the distillation of that past experience in a range of different organisations. Oh, right. Great. There's a great summary. Um, and there's, a co- there's an unexpected thing that I wouldn't mind just picking your brains about, as well as your work, if you don't mind. Oh, please. Um, just to put the context, the, the, the reason I invited you on, Dave, was because as a member of the Professional Speaking Association, we both are. I saw you speak at the PSA Northeast a couple of months ago now mm-hmm. and um, was wowed by you and your content. So that's why I, I was particularly keen to sort of see if we can pick it, pick it apart for um, individuals who are looking to bring that sense of different thinking, the breaking out of their thinking to apply to personal change or habitual change, you know, that personal yeah. development aspect. So that that's the the reason I'm, I've asked you on the show, because I think there's some great things in there to share. You did mention there, though, um, that you, under the head, you know, the heading of, damn it, I'm not getting any younger, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do this. Just to sort of pick up on that, one thing that I am interested in is the... Um, that time in our life that many of us get to where we kind of look around going, is this it? And we've worked hard down a particular path and now we're starting to question and think, well, could I do something else? Um, And sometimes we have a, we we might have responsibilities and financial limitations, you know, debt, that kind of thing that might cause sort of some sort of friction or inhibition to it. But I think also there's an element of the, the, I don't know, the, the courage to step out, so do it. So what what was, would you mind just sort of sharing a little bit more about that, just to, to sort of share your journey on that? Not at all. Uh, and there were probably um, two elements to consider that kind of came together with, with I say, perfect timing, with a degree of timing. Um, I left the corporate world in 2010, which is when I missed the management buyout, as I say. But prior to that, I'd started speaking uh, at a number of events as a chief exec of an organ of various organizations actually I'd always been quite keen to stand and explain more about what the organization did and I, I found out I was I was okay at it people engaged with the process and, and engaged with my stories and as you repeat them over and over again you tend to embellish and get a little bit more colorful and a little more adept at how you do it I stumbled across an organization called the Academy of Chief Executives about 2002 and became a member. And the idea is that you pay a fee on an annual, on a, a monthly basis, and you get each month a one day with a whole bunch of fellow chief execs. They have a guest speaker coming in the morning, and then there's a self-help group in the afternoon where the chief execs kind of compare notes and bounce around various ideas. And in parallel with being a member, I started speaking at those fora for a range of other networks that weren't my network, if you like. Again, found that the content was well-received, and I, I was sharing this stuff about creativity from a practitioner's point of view. So I was an acting chief exec and I was presenting around this whole creativity material piece. Uh, found it went well. Um, towards the end of my tenure as the chief exec of my former organization, which was the drug testing company for British horse racing, rather curiously, um, when I, I, I'd started using it as a tool to promote the organization because we used to bring fellow organizations in and show them what we we're doing creatively. It was embedded inside our organization. We used to use creativity techniques a lot to transform the culture of the business and have been hugely successful on the back of that in terms of that transformation of the culture. And I therefore dipped my toe in the process of generating a network of organizations that were that were interested in what we had to say and the techniques we had to share. But I'd done it 
secure in the position as chief exec of the organization. So when he came to leaving, when I missed the management buyout and the big corporate came over the hill, uh, my role changed. And I was fortunate because in departing, I managed to have a, a modest amount of money that would tide me over a short period of time without being dependent on employment. So I, the two things kind of came together. I had some past experience in a model that I thought would work. And I had a, a, a period of time where I knew my salary would be covered to go and give that idea a go in the, in the kind of public arena, if you like. So it bought me some time um, and, it, and it worked. Uh, and it's been a, a joy ever since. Does that make Brilliant. sense, David? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's it's useful just to ask the, the question about that story, because one of the things I've found in my journey, you know, in, in business, moving, leaving uh, a secure profession, policing, um, I, in my early days, fell for that romantic image of you risk it all, you know, you jump off and you, you build your wings on the way down, that kind of thing. Um, and I think what's really important is recognizing that you only ever hear about the successes in those. Yeah. And actually, the better way to do it is, as you've illustrated there, is to to create a sense of um, experimentation and try it. But you've got a foundation where the things that need to be paid for, the security is still Absolutely. there. And, uh, you know, it's kind of challenging, I guess, that all or nothing choice that sometimes we feel as if is presented in front of us, you know. So I, I, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, not at all. And I must admit, I think the, the, the risk was really well mitigated there was a horrible moment where the the new employers were taking me to court over whether or not they were going to pay me anything as a result of my departure so that was a scary moment but yeah. i went into it thinking it was risk-free and fortunately came out of it with a with a, a relatively modest and manageable risk yeah yeah cool great thanks for sharing that Dave. um so as I said, getting into the work that you do now um do you want to give us a, a flavor or talk us through the 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 ethos sure. and the, the sure. processes, and then we'll try and sort of tailor it into how it might work for individuals. Sure. When, when I first came across this material, I was doing um, an MBA, actually, through the Open University, and, the, and I was doing some very sensible management training courses. I was manufacturing director in the petrochemical industry at the time before I'd gone on to be an MD and CEO of organisations. And I was doing some very standard kind of manufacturing-based education programmes, so, so it was all very fine. Uh, but I stumbled across a course on creative management, <clears throat> which was introduced to me as being weird. Uh, in fact, I was told it was weird. Um, it's a six-month course, tends to freak people out. It's badly presented. The contents are jumble, is the way it was explained to me. <laughs> said that people tend to leave the course in droves, but if you survive the six months, there's an exam at the end and no one in the history of the course had ever failed the exam. So you think, well, crikey, this is got a free credits towards my qualification. They actually said as well, the person who was advising me was the HR manager, said, um, he said, what's more, um, the second you walk out of the exam, you can forget everything you ever learned because no one in their right mind would ever want to use this stuff. And very early on, we had to do an exercise in-house where we used some of the learning and some of the, the very weird techniques. People were sure enough leaving the course. Had to apply the techniques in practice with a small group of people and write up the experience. And we found no matter how bizarre the techniques were, they worked. And the engineer in me kind of takes over at that point. You think, well, hang on. If there's some teaching here that works and some techniques that work, why wouldn't you do more of it? But first, you need to kind of internalize it and work out how to explain it to people in terms that they can understand. So there's a whole bunch of theoretical materials out there about creativity. And what I managed to do was to pull together a storyline that helps individuals and organizations understand why they get trapped in more of the same thinking. Every organization, every individual says they want to do things differently, 
um, then do more of the same because we're locked in convention and tradition. Once you get over that kind of education process of understanding, and it doesn't take long to explain to organizations why they're trapped, and it becomes undeniable. If you can express it in terms whereby they look at it and go, well, actually, this makes sense, then you're giving credibility to what then look like at face value, really weird techniques. And it's the weirdness of the techniques that tends to frighten people off. But if you can logically introduce them and logically explain why they're going to work, then people start to buy into them. Then you start generating outcomes and completely new breakthrough thinking as a result of the application of the techniques. And the outcomes tend to bring more people in because people say, how did you do that? Well, let me explain the technique. Ah, Next time you're doing one of those, now it's got credibility. Count me in. I can see now how that works. And so what we do is it's kind of two slabs to this. The first slab and the the kind of the, the foundation, if you like, is an understanding of why this supposedly unusual stuff actually works and why you should be doing it. So that's kind of the theoretical bedrock, which takes kind of an introductory masterclass, if you like. Then there's a whole raft of techniques once you get the understanding that you can put in. And what we do is help organizations learn how to do the techniques for themselves. There's no shortage of creativity consultants out there that'll take you away for a residential weekend, have you hugging trees, tied together with ribbons, skipping through the fields, playing silly games, And the experience is truly life-changing. Genuinely, they're good, these consultants. Expensive, but good. Uh, By Sunday evening, your life will be changed. And it will last for about 48 hours. Because by Wednesday of the following week, the muck and bullets of everyday life have taken over. And you have to bring consultants in to do this stuff. So you end up, it just fades as a dim and distant memory. For me, it's all about getting organizations to do it for themselves. If I can teach you to fish... You can survive for a long time. If you have to buy the fish from me, the novelty of that wears off, for goodness sake. So we're all about teaching people how to do this for themselves because then they can embed it inside the organisation. And I guess that process then of, firstly, you've got to convince them and then give them the techniques and then show them how they can do it is is the process. So thinking about it from an individual's perspective then, why, why does it work? Because you, you mentioned why does it work and then why you should use it. So Right. So let me explain kind of the key underpinning rationale. Um, and it kind of starts like, I mean, I've worked in loads of organisations over my time. There's a universal constant out there, which is the fact that the world around us is changing at an ever-increasing rate. Um, no rocket science. Change begets change, if you like, and you end up with a multiplying effect. And before you know it, you have an exponential takeoff of stuff out there which is brilliant news as it happens for any organization, any individual that's right-minded, that's creative, that's innovative. Because what it means is out there in the world today, even as we come in and out of lockdown and what have you, I guarantee whatever you're doing, there's someone somewhere out there in the world today developing new thinking, new processes, new technologies that could transform the way you think. All you have to do, scan the horizon for all those possible changes, grab what takes your fancy, implement it, bang, you're off on your next innovation journey. So that's the good news. There's a huge source, an ever ex- kind of an exploding universe of opportunity. All we have to do is scan, grab, implement, bang, we're off. Our problem is we can't keep up with that rate of change. Yeah, we're good, but we're not that good. I always say there's my brain there. If I kind of cut my hands, there's my brain. It's not a brilliant brain. It's an okay brain. It can keep on top of lots, but there's no way it can keep on top of everything that's out there. And it's worse than that. Because as a species, as a, the human race as a species are very successful on this planet in evolutionary terms. 
Uh, and much of that success is based on a series of behaviors and traits, which actually triples up when it comes to creativity and innovation and doing things differently. And the most significant of those is that fundamentally, we make sense of our worlds by looking backwards. We are fundamentally backward looking individuals, which kind of sounds like an odd thing to say, but if you think about it, it's obvious, because if you have a problem or a challenge that pops up in your life today, the first thing you will inevitably do is look backwards, because you're going to look at your past experience, your knowledge, your training, your education, stuff that's happened in your past. You'll scan through that past, work out what's in there that can have a positive impact on today's problem or challenge, and boof, you're off on your next improvement process. So we can improve over time, but we improve based on looking backwards. And I don't care how good people think they are, the sum total of anyone's knowledge and understanding is a tiny fraction of the sum total of knowledge and experience that's out there in the world. So we can improve, but we improve at a much slower rate than the world around us. And any individual or any organization, because of that repetitive, backward-looking perspective, ends up getting trapped in what I refer to as a world of what is. It's how we do things around here. It's how we always go about solving these problems. So if you've got a problem, you've got a challenge, even at a personal level, let's go on holiday next year. Where should we go? The first thing you do is think about all your past holidays, work out what you like, and dependent on that backward-looking perspective, then decide what you're going to do moving forward completely ignorant of any other form of holiday that could be taking that is completely removed from your past experience. So our past experience traps us into more of the same. And any aspect of your thought process is always referenced to your past. So once you understand that that's taking place, and it's, an, it's kind of instinctive, I would say this is um, hardwired in our DNA to do things based on what we know about. If you go back long enough on an evolutionary timescale, so go back Stone Age days, going back quite some time, go back on an evolutionary timescale, we learn pretty quickly that if you step out of the cave and do things differently, you could die. So everyone who consistently failed to learn the lesson, kept stepping out of the cave and doing things differently, they eventually died. And what you're left with are our ancestors. So we genetically, we share the genetics of those that successfully learned the merits playing safe based on what you know from the past. So we are genetically trapped. And the only way you can escape is by using techniques that manipulate the brain, shut off that entrapment that allow you to escape and see things very differently. And that's the core of the creativity techniques. But it's also why they look weird, because you cannot use conventional and traditional techniques to escape from convention and tradition. You have to use unconventional, untraditional techniques that mess with your brain. If they don't mess with your brain, you're going to end up with more of the same. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. And before we get into them, I'm kind of delaying just to build the tension for some of the techniques. But I think this is a, this is a really profound thing to recognise, isn't it? That we're that backward-looking creature yeah. that we are for good reason. Absolutely. However, the world, and we do need the basics of that, but the world, as you say, is changing so fast. We do need something different. So I'm thinking about individuals who, whether I've coached them or, you know, who might be listeners of the, the podcast, who are... Um, Maybe looking at things like, you know, I'm reaching my mid-40s to 50s. Um, I'm struggling to get the weight off that I've put on in the last few years. And what I'm trying is what I've, I've tried before or what I yeah. know, you know, through experience, family members, etc. Or um, I feel a bit trapped in my career, my job. And that thinking differently 
revolves around, well, what do I know? What's, what's it, what other things am I aware of in my past that other people might have done, et cetera? So I, I totally get that. And this is where I think this, this is what I'm excited about because for me, the Sprout Sweater is about implementing small changes and new habits, et cetera. But that doesn't pre- prevent big yep. thinking and, and allowing ourselves to think big. How we then implement it is the next thing, you know, in a sustainable way. But for me, this is the, where it's exciting because I think we can really benefit from taking the the, the barriers or the shutters or however you describe them a way to to open up that thinking and it's inter- it's interesting actually because you see it in everyday life i mean my wife and i often have a conversation where my wife is hunting for the car keys or something and she's hunting around the house for the car keys and so i can't find them anywhere um so i said well have you tried there and she'll go well i never put them there and you end up just step out of that conversation you've looked everywhere you always put them so by definition, they must be somewhere that you haven't, put, you don't normally put them. You're, by definition, they must be somewhere where you don't normally put them. But of course, we concentrate on looking where we always put the car keys and then can't find them. And sure enough, they turn up somewhere else and you think, cracky, how did they get there? Don't know, don't really matter. But you have to start looking where you don't expect to look. Exactly the same thought process with regard to our futures, our situations. We, we just get trapped. So, because I, th- th- how do we then start to to open the open the, the blinds, the shutters, however you describe them? How do we start to think differently? So there are kind of two elements to it that are kind of worth sharing. I think that the first of those is that we are genetically preconditioned to rush in and solve problems before we necessarily understand them fully. So we develop a cursory understanding of whatever our personal challenge might be or our problem is. And I'll go, oh, I've got this problem. Um, and, and you kind of know what I mean, because if you share it with a colleague uh, or with a, with a member of the family and say, here's my problem, what the family member will do very quickly is go, yeah, yeah, yeah I understand what your problem is. Just based on a few words that you're sharing with them. You know, I've got anxiety. Yeah, 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 I've got anxiety as well. And so all of a sudden, there's kind of a resonance. And you go, and go, how on earth can you convey everything you need to know about the problem or the challenge quite so quickly? And we do it personally. We assess a situation and we assess it really quickly. And this is, this is in our DNA as well. I mean, if you step out of that cave in Stone Age days and there's a saber-toothed tiger coming your way, what you don't do is say, well, hang on, I managed to escape that saber-toothed tiger many times before. Maybe there's a better way of doing it. I know. Let's get a group of colleagues together and have a bit of a brainstorming session and see if there's a better way of escaping the saber-toothed tiger. You'll be dead just like that. It's not survival of the fittest, survival of the quickest when it comes to problem solving. So we are genetically conditioned, natural selection. If I can solve a problem quicker than you, I reckon I'll survive longer than you will, if that makes sense. And we do it. What we do is we assess our personal problems and challenges really quickly articulate them in very simplistic terms to ourselves and then act based on that simplistic understanding. And 99.999% of the time, that's fine. But if you've got a problem or a situation that you can't solve and you can't address, my start point as a creative facilitator is, I'll bet you haven't defined the problem properly in the first place. So you think you understand what your problem is, but let's spend a bit of time clarifying it and just exploring it. And there are a range of techniques that you can use that are nothing to do with solving the problem whatsoever. Everything to do with understanding what the problem is all about in the first place. In its extreme, I suppose the talking therapies, cognitive behavior therapy and what have you, 
seemingly nothing to do with solving the problem, but simply by having conversations and picking apart normally with someone who's completely naive to your situation, because that adds greater clarity, because they can challenge your thinking in a way someone who's close to you can't. But what it gives you is a fresher perspective on what the problem is all about. And I know that with, with CBT, I went through CBT and my wife, I know there's a frustration in the very early stages where people say, well, I see me, I'm not actually solving my problem, but we're having a lovely chat about it. But at some point, there's a penny dropping moment when they go, huh, that's interesting. That changes the way I look at my situation. And so having techniques and approaches and there's a whole bunch of mechanical techniques that you can use, um, kind of um, process-driven techniques that you can use to, to regulate your thinking, um, to stop you rushing in, to sit back, make sure that you're analysing the situation appropriately, and then asking the question at the end of that exercise, so what's my real problem here? What's my real problem? Not what's the off-the-top-of-the-head definition of the problem that I can arrive at very quickly, but now having reflected on the makeup of my problem, what's the real problem? So, for example, one of the techniques we use is multiple cause analysis. And basically, if you've got a problem, Dave, that you're challenged with, then what I'd do is I'd sit down as a facilitator and say, well, you've got a top-level problem here that inevitably is complex. There's a hierarchy of sub-problems that sit beneath it. And by trying to solve your top-level problem, you're effectively looking for a single silver bullet that will address every single one of those sub-problems that sits beneath the top problem. Because if you want your problem to go away, inevitably, <clears throat> some of the sub-problems will be critical. If you don't solve this problem, sub-problem here, then you will never solve your top-level problem. Here's a completely different sub-level problem. If you don't solve that, you will never solve your top-level problem. So by having a sloppy definition of the challenge in the first place, what you're demanding is that you find a single silver bullet that will solve all of your critical sub-problems. Well, good luck with that, because that's why the problem won't go away. You've solved a bit of it, but the rest of it is still giving you the same top-level effect. And so by simply, as a facilitator, mapping out that hierarchy of sub-problems, what you're then able to do is to say, so what's your, at the end of the exercise, so what's your real problem you've got here? And often you find there are two or three of these critical sub-problems. I need to solve this, I need to solve this, and I need to solve this. Collectively, if I solve one, two, and three, I will solve my top-level challenge. And having someone who is independent and managing the natural inclination to rush into solving a problem and holding you back from that, the task is map out the hierarchy of sub-problems. And ideally, the independent person should actually contribute to that process as well, because they will see sub-problems that you don't necessarily see yourself. Mm. So, and, and so you often find when you're doing it, you say, well, you've probably got this sub-problem as well. And they go, they look at you quizzically. They go, actually, you're right. That is, yes, if I don't address that, I'm never going to solve. Right, fine. So there's, there's kind of a distinction between that facilitation and coaching, I always think, in that coaching you tend to come from a position that says it's within you i just need to help you find it and forgive me david that's a very crude understanding of coaching i know and when it comes to these creativity techniques whoever the facilitator is can actually put some of their experience into it as well not not from a, a mentoring point of view but you can identify things that the problem owner or challenge owner is not telling you about because they've kind of somehow compartmentalized it and got rid of it, because it might be inconvenient. But it's true, but it's inconvenient. Well, the job of the facilitator is to shine a light on that.
as it yeah. is with coaching, but in coaching, you're still looking for people to reveal it to themselves, I guess. Yeah. Does, does that make sense? So there's kind of a... Absolutely. A, a and I think with coaching, it, yeah, it's that recognition that you're not, when you're coaching, you've got to be prepared to shift along, like put a different hat on from time to time within that, that, you know, if, if you're, you know, as you build your sort of experience uh, coaching. You, so yeah, you need to have totally, different hats that you're, play, you're, you're playing with. Yeah, yeah I agree. totally get that. So... Uh, that's the first part. The second part, I guess, is then coming up with solutions. Uh, exactly. For, and right. um, the coming up with solutions, there, there are kind of two key approaches to it. Uh, there are metaphor-based techniques and there are provocation techniques, um, very classically. And anyone who's read any Edward de Bono will kind of recognise the provocation-style technique. But there's a whole raft of arguably much more accessible metaphor technique. So if I give you an example of a metaphor technique, um, the one I always start with is a technique called superheroes. Um, so if we've got a clarity on what your problem is, and we're left now saying, well, we now need to find a fresh approach to solving it. What I've got is a series of cards, and on every card is the definition of a different superhero. So I've got Batman, I've got Spider-Man, I've got Wonder Woman, I've got Poison Ivy, Captain America, Invisible Girl, Human Torch. There's, there's kind of 12 of these superheroes. And on each card, there's a definition of the superhero talents of that particular superhero. So if you're doing this, and you can do it just one-on-one, -on -one, or you can do it with a bigger group, let's, let's do it one-on-one. -on -one. What I'd do is I'd, I'd give each person, so you're going to be two people, give each person one card. And what they have to do is to read their card out to whoever they're, they're working with. So, David, if it was you and I together, you're Wonder Woman, I'll be, I'll be Poison Ivy. I read out the skills of Poison Ivy to you, and you read out the skills and talents of Wonder Woman to me, or whichever way it was. Um, what we have to do is we read out the superhero talents. We need to channel those into our very bones. So you become Wonder Woman, and I become Poison Ivy. So I am now Poison Ivy, you're Wonder Woman. Superheroes can solve any problem. I always say it, it's like tongue-in-cheek. You never get a superhero movie where the opening credits die down, Poison Ivy tips up and says what seems to be the problem and goes, well, I can't solve that problem. Closing credits, end of film. I don't think so. Poison Ivy can solve any problem because she's a superhero. She's got skills and talents that you, and she can bring in people and she can do all sorts of stuff. Wonder Woman can also solve any problem, but she'll do it very differently because she's got a different set of talents. So what you end up with is what I refer to as an intermediate impossible. And what you end up with is an idea. Uh, both of us will end up with a Wonder Woman solution and a Poison Ivy solution. Both of our solutions will be novel, but useless. So, and that is our stepping step. We have a standard definition of creativity, which is the generation of ideas that are both novel and useful. Um, and we are, as adults, inherently brilliant at useful but we're rubbish at novel. And the reason we're so good at useful is it's based on past experience. Novel, by definition, is a new connection in the brain which is slow to form. So novelty, we're not very good at it. Young children are brilliant at novel because everything is novel to them. They're rubbish at useful, by the way, because they've got no real past experience. We're brilliant at useful, but rubbish at novel because we've got so much past experience, we can normally twist it to make us convinced that we can solve the problem. We can't, we're just using a useful idea. So the start point for creativity is a novel idea that's useless. So if I've got a Wonder Woman solution, you give me a Wonder Woman solution, it'll be novel. Well, of course it will. No one in their right mind is gonna use Wonder Woman to solve the problem that you've got. But here we go, we've given it a go and we found a solution. But it's useless because it's not applicable in practice. 
So we've got a novel and useless idea that will definitely solve the problem if only it were possible. Perfect start point for creativity. Because what we then do is take your Wonder Woman solution and identify the characteristics of that idea that make it work. So that Wonder Woman solution definitely works. Why does it work? Here's the characteristics that make it work. We then get rid of the idea, but keep the characteristics. Now what we have to do is what we as adults are very good at, find a useful way of delivering exactly the same set of characteristics. Bingo, we end up with a useful idea that has all the characteristics of the novel idea. That'll be novel and useful. That is the creative outcome that we're looking to achieve. And if you think about it, your Wonder Woman solution acts as a metaphor for something in the real world. But my poison ivy solution, which is completely different, equally provides a metaphor for something in the real world. And all we're doing is converting that metaphor. Does that make sense, David? Absolutely, yeah. And I think what probably would help is, is if we can kind of talk through some examples. I'm trying to, what, what I was just thinking, um, for the, if we look at those two parts, if you like, the first one is defining the problem. Yep. Um, and then obviously solutions-wise, we can maybe look at some live examples if, if sure. what I'm thinking is maybe using an, an I, you know, a typical challenge that I might coach um, and have experienced myself. Um, maybe use it as a bit of a case, a test study here just to see if we can talk through, just to illustrate sure. the point. Is that okay? Sure. So um, I think one of the common things is that feeling that um, I'm trapped in my job, I'm trapped in a career, I've got a, you know, I've, I, I'm miserable i'm unhappy in my work i'm bored by it i'm not fulfilled but i feel like i haven't got a lot of choice in what i do because i've got a mortgage i've got this that and the other you know to to fulfill um and i don't know what else i'd do you know that kind of that's quite a common yeah. one that so I so let, let's just look at the problem definition so the problem definition is i feel trapped okay is that fair so that's yeah that's the yeah. start point yeah. i feel trapped okay um if you say, I feel trapped, th then what you're describing is a situation. It's actually not a problem statement for a start. And it's interesting because people are sufficiently sloppy at problem definitions. They often, you say, what's your problem? They give you the definition. You go, oh, that's not really a problem statement. It's a situation statement. And I feel trapped is a situation statement because your problem is that you want to escape, which is a different phrasing. But depending on how you define a problem, dictates entirely about how you go solving about solving it. So it might be I want to feel less trapped or I want to I want to escape or I don't want to feel trapped. And one of the things that we always do in terms of um, challenging the definition of the problem statement is effectively a supercharging. Because when you define your problem, you define it constrained by your world of what is, the way I always refer to things. So you sit in your world of what is, the world in which you're trapped by convention and tradition, and you express your problem in a manner that's consistent with that world. What you then do is try and find solutions to that problem. But because that problem is consistent with the world in which you're trapped, the solutions you're going to find are going to be consistent with the world in which you're trapped. And what it might do is make your world better, but it won't transform your world. Right. So we tend to express our problem statements in terms that are consistent with continuous improvement, basically. What you're looking to do is to increase something or enhance something. You want more of something. I want more freedom. Relative words. If ever you see a relative word or hear a relative word in a problem or situational statement, it's begging for a continuous improvement solution. And 
if you want to feel less trapped, let's say you want to, I want to feel, and what's your problem? I want to feel less trapped. Then whatever you're doing to feel less trapped, just do more of it and you will feel less trapped because less has no quantification about it whatsoever. Hmm. So if I can make you feel less, a little bit less trapped, then that's the solution you're going to gravitate towards because it's consistent with the world in which you're trapped. So you're comfortable with it as a solution. And you can see that incrementally it might make it slightly better. And what you end up doing is condemning yourself to kind of more of the same, but slightly better. Does that make sense, David? It does. So, so, just so let me just go on to explain problem. what we do therefore. And there's kind of a neat trick you can play here because what you want to do is to get people to don't tell me about your problem tell me what you want as the outcome of solving your problem in a perfect, perfect world, unconstrained by any reality whatsoever. So don't give me a constrained outcome that you're looking for and don't tell me how to do it in your problem definition because we're lousy at problem definition. What we tend to do is bury our preferred solutions into the expression of the problem. Don't do that. Tell me what the outcome of solving the problem will look and feel like in a perfect world, unconstrained by any reality. And I always kind of dub this as the Spice Girls moment, because what we're asking people to do is tell us what you want, what you really, really want. And you get full marks if they say, well, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. <laughs> and what they'll do is they'll flirt with the go, cool, this is liberating. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. And as they start to explain what they really want, it starts to feel weird because it's not, it doesn't tie up with what they know and they're comfortable with, which is their world in which they're trapped. So what they do is I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. They start to be expressive and then dumb it down a bit because it feels too weird. And the role of the facilitator then is to catch them on that. Say, no, you can do better than that. No, you can do better than that. No, you can do better than that. So don't tell me you feel trapped, which is the negative aspect of it. If I can get to a position where you don't feel trapped, then that may be an outcome. But let's go further than that and say, well, hang on. Tell me, what's the feeling you want? If you want to be exhilarated by, every, by your time at work, brilliant. But I could do better than that. You want to be exhilarated for every single moment of your time in work, or you want to be thrilled and, and kind of overwhelmed by enthusiasm for everything that happens at home. So whatever it is, whatever your situation, tell me about the outcome, but don't tell me how to get there. Does that make sense, Dave? Absolutely. So can I just pause the two pause, yeah. sides? One thing that struck me um, when you said uh, less of <clears throat> was... And it was something I did, actually, when I first was trying to transition. Well, no, I didn't. I, I jumped ship and failed miserably in my business, had to go back to policing. The next job was, how can I feel less trapped yep. here? Yep. It was reduce my hours to the, yep. to the minimum. So that's less. And it, had, it was a positive impact in that sense in sure. that I was able to find type. So there was a, there's a positive, and it's not, it's not being judgmental against that. It worked, but it wasn't the, that, what I really, really want. Yeah, yeah. So... And then switch it around. If I was to say back then, what I really want, what what I really wanted was to f to feel free to do whatever I want, to to work and do stuff I really love doing. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. 
then, and then you would work with that, I guess. Uh, you that work steering. with that. So, so, you're, so that's the start point for the creative process. Right. Is, uh, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Right, fine. And then you th then start to say, so how can we achieve that in the real world? So it's so not the real world, actually, but using an intermediate impossible. So let's use superheroes. Yes. How can, what could Wonder Woman do that could help you do that? Well, well, the Wonder Woman's got magic. She's got a magic lasso, the lasso of truth, so she can wrap it around. So you can take a whole bunch of customers, wrap, wrap them with the lasso, and they will instantly tell you exactly what they want from you and what they're – in fact, what they'll do is tell you what they're prepared to pay for that you could deliver for them. So just lasso someone at random and kind of tighten it up on them and ask them what they want from you they're prepared to pay for, and they'll tell you. So how cool would that be? Because that eliminates all risk whatsoever. So you're no longer trapped. You choose who you want to get the answers from. What's more, Wonder Woman with her magic airplane, which is also got, can also, which is invisible, by the way, can fly you around the world. So you can do this on an international times, uh, frames, kind of framework, if you want, kind of from a geography point of view. So you build up effectively a screenplay for the film in which your problem is solved. And what you have to do is suspend judgment because what what overwhelmingly you end up with a little voice going yeah but that's ridiculous yeah but that's ridiculous the sort of truth but they're not going to do that but but you forget that forget that forget that in the film that's what happens so imagine the film playing out in front of you so we end up with a solution that says we're going to use the lasso of truth. We've got magic bracelets that can deflect budgets or bullets. So all those people will say, oh, it's never going to work. Bang. What we do is deflect them with it with your magic bracelets, which you're now wearing. So to kick off all the negativity, you've only got the positive feedback from the lasso of truth. The magic airplane that allows you to go anywhere you want in order to address your marketplace, your, your chosen marketplace. Would that solve the problem? Well, as I play the film out in my head, I can see that at the end of the day, kind of the closing shot is just you, you kind of you're there with a glass of with your martini or something of an evening sunset dropping down, completely released and relaxed. How cool is that? In the film, it works perfectly. It's impossible to implement it, of course, because it involves a whole bunch of other things. So what you then say is, well, how could you actually that that's the intermediate impossible? So that's novel, but useless. And no one in their right mind would normally. It's only because we're, we're, we're pretending to be Wonder Woman that we've come up with that solution. So certainly novel, but it's useless because the superhero talents aren't real. Breaking news, spoiler alert. Um, so they're not real. So you say, right, fine. So why does it work? Well, you've got a complete elimination of risk. You've got the absolute truth from your target customers. And you're therefore guaranteed to be able to secure their revenue on the on the back of that so your financial security is now is now secure what's more you choose who you're doing business with so you choose those people that you think are going to make you happy in terms of your work so you have the miserable so-and-sos don't don't go there you can choose so the characteristics are there you then say right fine so what would what what can you do in the real world that mimics that effect so you can start off by saying, well, what's the profile? So in the real world, and we're making this up as we go along, of course, and it involves some interplay. And, and it, you know, doing it in the spur of the moment is always kind of an interesting process, but it will give you an indication of how this could work. What you might want to do is define the profile of who it is you want to do business with. And as I hear myself say it, I've been running the Idea Centre for 10 years, and the little voice in the back of my head is going, why have I never defined the profile of the individual I would want to, the organisation I'd want to do business with? Because why wouldn't I want to do that? Yeah. But I guarantee I haven't. 
And I guarantee the vast majority of businesses have never done, of individuals have never done that either. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Why would they tell me the truth? Well, I would have to be able to relate to them in an empathetic way that absolutely made them feel at ease and open and honest. So if I can get the conditions right, I mean, you know, you have conversations with some people and they open up because for whatever reason, the way you've connected has transformed the interaction that you're having with the individual. You equally know that you walk into, you walk into a shop on the high street and dependent on what happens in those first two or three seconds, you know, they just ignore you when you walk in. Well, they've lost you in that case because you're pissed off with them to start off with. So you, you colour that relationship, but you equally know those times when you find yourself having a horribly open conversation with someone in a store. You would never normally do this, but they just wanted to know and they were fabulous. And it starts to help you kind of develop in your head an approach and a strategy that will help you secure those relationships. And the only reason we're thinking about this is because of Wonder Woman's lasso of truth. Yeah. Can you see how that works? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I love um, metaphor anyway, and I think that the power of you being able to sort of step out and see things from a different perspective and generate ideas is great. And I, I guess a couple of things, practically speaking, from, a, from an individual who's applying, trying to either whether they do it themselves or they, they engage a coach or, or something sure. like yourself, facilitating it, I guess is handling the objections, the resistance that they might have during the process. Because, yes, I buy into suspending my belief. I can see why. But when it happens, it'll pop up or it comes up. So how right. do we manage that? So that we, Because we can get the ideas we get the I need agree. to do it. I agree. And it takes practice. Um, I, I, there is no fancy answer to it, I don't believe. I believe if you understand critically why these techniques work, so you can understand the steps you have to go through, what you have to do is, is understand you're managing the movement of the thought processes in the brain. So the left-hand side of the brain is like, um, there was a beautiful Horizon program on this many years ago, and I can send you the link for anyone who's interested, actually, a fabulous Horizon program that explained the difference between the left-hand side of the brain and the right-hand side of the brain. Left-hand side of the brain, factually, is like a densely wired computer. Um, and it's full of very short, rapid-firing neural networks, which is kind of thinking tissue in the brain. And it works really quickly. Um, and if you've got a problem, as soon as you hear a problem, poof, the left-hand side of the brain kicks into gear and starts processing the information. And before you know it, it's got a solution for you. It's really quick. Fight or flight stuff. You step out of the cave, saber-toothed tiger coming your way. Don't mess around. Solve the problem. Just like that. Left brain. Right-hand side of the brain is, sell is, is used less often uh, for, for problem solving, because it's, it's by contrast with the left brain, it's kind of got longer, less connected neural networks. It's not empty space, for goodness sake, but it's perfect for making new connections. But because you're making a new connection, it's slow to form. So slow that the left hand side of the brain gets bored waiting and therefore rushes and solves the problem for you anyway. And once you've got a useful idea, you can't get novelty in there because it looks weird when you've got a useful idea. So what you have to have in your head if you're doing these techniques is that you're using the process of the technique to effectively manage the movement in the brain from the left to the right and then from the right to the left. And if you don't have techniques that move from the left to the right and then right to the left, all you're doing is condemning yourself to left brain thinking, which is fine for 99.9999% of the time. 
But when it's not solving it for you, it's because you need to think differently. And that's when you need to manipulate it over to the right-hand the, the right hand side of the brain. And if you have in your head that that's what you're doing with the techniques and you have the discipline to follow the technique. I always say that these creativity techniques, young children, by the way, can do this stuff so easily. And the reason they can do it so easily is because their backward-looking perspective hasn't yet formed. I always think that our brain is like, um, if you imagine a, a kind of a filing cabinet, inside the filing cabinet, beautifully filed, beautifully indexed, there are patterns for everything we've ever made sense of, everything we've ever learned, anything we've ever experienced. It's beautifully filed and beautifully indexed. And it's huge. And what we're doing constantly, subconsciously, is fingering our way through the filing cabinet to make sense of the world around us. Young children, the second we're born, you've got an empty filing cabinet. And what we're doing as we grow up is filling the filing cabinet. Young children are brilliantly creative because they've got an empty filing cabinet. Adults are brilliant at useful because we've got a full filing cabinet. But we've got no room for new material because we've got plenty of useful stuff. So we're brilliant at useful, rubbish at novel. Young children are brilliant at novel, rubbish at useful. So as you fill the filing cabinet, you lose it. And if you understand that that's what's happening inside your head, then these techniques simply become a mechanism for managing the way the brain operates on the, on, in, solution, in generating solutions. And you don't have to go away for residential weekends. You do not need to pay consultants. You do not need to get tied together with ribbons and play silly games. You just have to tolerate playing what is effectively a boxed game for thinking differently. So there are loads of different techniques. The superheroes technique is one technique. Imagine that you buy the boxed game of superheroes, you take the lid off the box, the first thing you see is a set of instructions on how to play the game. Adults can play games brilliantly, provided we know what the rules are. So every one of these creativity <clears throat> techniques has a set of rules. And as long as you follow the rules, adults can have a great game, suspend judgment, and in the duration of a game, and I reckon none of these techniques in isolation take more than half an hour with a bit of practice, you will generate an idea you've never had of before. And then you say, well, I'm good at superheroes, but maybe there's another technique. So you use bionics. In bionics as a technique, bionics is um, kind of grounded in nature. What you observe is whatever your problem is, nature has been around for a long time. It's kind of understatement of the day. Nature has been around for a long time in all its forms. So there's kind of the plant kingdom, there's the animal kingdom, there's the non-living systems. It solved many problems. Whatever your problem is, I guarantee someone, somewhere in nature, the equivalent of your problem has been solved. So if we can find an equivalent example in nature where your problem has been solved, then we can see how nature, nature becomes the metaphor. You say, well, how has nature solved the problem? And if we can understand how nature has solved the problem, what the key characteristics are, then all we have to do is make sure that our solution to our problem has the same set of characteristics. So the, the example in nature becomes a metaphor for something in the real world. And if we say, yeah, yeah, but we don't like that example, we don't like, we don't really want to do that, then the solution you've got then is, then suck it up and live with the problem. Because nature has been trying to refine and refine and refine these problems over eons, and it has found the most elegant solution. If you don't like the way nature has done it, then you're just going to have to live with the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's a brutality to some of these techniques. And when it comes to arguing the toss with nature, I always reckon, you know what, let's just assume nature's got it right. And if nature's solved the problem and you haven't, it must be doing something that you're not doing the equivalent of. 
And it stops being a silly game and actually becomes quite an interesting mental challenge. You often find people Googling, um, you know, I know the solution is solved by, by the sperm whale or something in some way, but how has it solved the problem? Let's Google sperm whales and find out how it solved the problem. There's um, a website called asknature.com. Uh, and what it does, if you define your characteristics of a problem on, on the website, asknature.com, then it will give you examples in nature where the same problem has been solved. Oh, it's a gift. And so all you have to do then is interrogate how the problem's been solved, and you've got another metaphor for solving the problem. Just convert I mean, the metaphor. We're good at that. With practice, we can do it. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, because I love that idea, the novel but useless. We, if we can get there, then we've got the yes. stepping stone. You mentioned, obviously, metaphor, and you've given us a couple of examples. You said provocation. Provocation. Now, what what, what um, do you mean by that? Provocation is, and there's a the kind of a generic strand of those techniques or provocation techniques uh, called synectics. And synectics is spelt S-Y-N-E-C-T-I-C-S. Um, and there used to be a consulting company called Synectics Incorporated that was a global, kind of US-based, but global consulting company that did nothing other than variations on this technique. So if you've got a problem, so if you say, you know, I feel trapped, then what you can do is pick something at random. So, um, so at random, what I've got here is a little Garmin from my bike. So a Garmin kind of sat now viewed it from my bike. It's completely random. I had, before we had this conversation, I didn't even think about the fact it was on my desk. It just happens to be on my desk. So the solution to your problem is this Garmin sat-nav. Completely at random. I don't, as I say those words, I'm now inwardly thinking, crikey, how on earth is this going to work? And that's because it's a random provocation. Or I could say the solution to your problem is this pack of tunes, which have been half eaten, it turns out, or this pair of glasses here. Only has one of the arms because the other arms has been super glued in place. So that's kind of it. So, so it's this pair of glasses, or it's this satin nav, or it's it's whatever. It's just random object, and it's the randomness of the provocation that effectively forms that provocation. So, what if this is the world in which you're trapped? So you're trapped in your world. If you were trying to solve your problem, you would never think of the Garmin sat nav as a, as a vehicle to help you solve it. So it's something that sits outside your world of what is. So the way you'd normally solve the problem is your world of what is. I'm giving you the Garmin sat-nav as the vehicle to start your thinking. So instantly, this, this sat-nav unit has dragged you outside the way you would normally look at solving the problem. And we're now looking at the sat-nav saying, what can we learn from the sat-nav that will give you a different perspective on the way you need to solve your problem? So the sat-nav, I mean, there's kind of a, it's interesting actually, and genuinely, uh, no thought, it was genuinely the least obvious thing that I had on my desk, if you like. We think, well, the sat-nav is a root plotter. You know, just trivially, it's a root plotter. And there are lots of different ways you can plot a route from A to B, and you can pre-program it and download it, and it gives you a steer at every turn. Huh. So if you tell me what you'd want as an outcome of solving the problem in a perfect, perfect world, Spice Girls moment, you start at where you are, this is where you're going to finish off. What we need to do is plot a route. So we can now kind of say, right, fine. So what a, what can we learn from a sat-nav about how to navigate a route? You know, do you want to go on those back alleys or do you want to rule out the back alleys? Do you want to rule out the motorways and the tolls? So there's a fast route to it or there's a more round the houses route to it. Instantly, we're now we're solving your problem, but we're using the language that we've stolen from the sat-nav. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. It's bizarre. 
you've got my brain firing in all sorts of directions in terms of you know uh, provoking questions, provoke those questions that can provoke that thinking in somebody who is you know whether they're they've tried all sorts to lose some weight or get their fitness back or they they are looking to find a less stressful job etc. Some great techniques there. And, uh, and, and I, I, just recognise, by the way, there yeah. is an infinite number of random objects that we could have used to solve your problem. Yeah. <laughs> so there's an infinite number, and all we're doing is taking the world in which you're trapped and picking a point that's outside it to generate the novelty. Right. So I've got a desk lamp here. I've got an electronic desk lamp. Well, that's a different point, so that'll force it. And so it means you've got an infinite number of different ways of looking at the problem. This is a three-dimensional thing. What's not to like, for goodness sake? Yeah, it's... It, 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 well, not only is it powerful, it potentially brings in that fun bit to it as well. The laugh. Yeah, and if you are feeling trapped, for you know, for example, a lot of that can be associated quite negatively. So, giving yourself permission to play, as you say, with the rules, etc., because as adults we, we need that. But yep. I can see how that can be really, really useful. Um, I get that, that it's also perhaps important to have somebody who's not connected to support you through that. But I can also see at, at, a, at a level how you could have a mind, you could have a play with that idea. So, you know, absolutely, listener, what, you know, what might be one thing that's on your mind? Yes, we have to go, I suppose you'd have to work on that defining the problem, but what would, and I'm lifting a random thing, what would SpongeBob, what can we learn from exactly. SpongeBob? And you're going, for, and for the benefit of the listener, I've got a little SpongeBob plastic toy in front of me. Don't ask me. And recognise that, because novelty is, by definition, a new connection in your brain. So, right. and don't get high, people often go very philosophical and say, well, what is novelty? If you've got a problem and I can give you an idea you've never thought of before, I reckon that's novel to you. Yeah. It's a new thought process. Yeah. But recognize a new thought process is a new connection in the brain, which is not necessarily quick to form. So, you've given that SpongeBob model and that's the solution to your escaping your entrapment feeling the fact even if you can't instantly find a connection what you end up doing is saying well hang on let me just play with that and incubate that thought process over the next day or so and every now and then spongebob pops into your head and you, you'll end up i promise you you will end up at the moment and go of course what i need to do is this yeah because your brain incubates this stuff provided you take it seriously if you look at it and go yeah but that's just rubbish that's just not going to work yeah then, then what you've just done is eliminated any chance of making a new connection. Yeah. And you have to tolerate that. You know, genuinely, when I held up the sat-nav, I had no idea how that connection was going to be. I just saw it there and thought, well, that's unlikely. Let's just hold that. And people often look and go, well, actually, it's quite obvious how that works in retrospect. Things are always obvious in retrospect. Yes. But we only are. had that conversation because I, I picked up a garment. Yeah. Or because you picked up SpongeBob, which would be a completely different conversation. So tolerating that it might take a day or so to solve the problem. Right. But in the grand scheme of things, who cares? Yeah, if you've got a problem you can't solve, and I'm going to say, well, it might take you a day or so to solve it, but you'll have to invest no time or energy other than just every now and then just flick a brain over it. What's not to like? Exactly. And that's very Sprout Sweaterish. <laughs> that's very much about, you know, allowing the subconscious and what have you to work Absolutely. on things so brilliant oh I, I, we could talk all day and uh, just to kind of say when i saw you speak of psa northeast you i don't think provocation or that exercise came into it so we weren't even primed to have it so that's brilliant it's it's yeah. it's great I, i'm pleased i've had a chance to pick your brains on these pleasure. things so um i guess just before we um have our part and thoughts etc 
anybody wants to get in touch, listen to or find out more about you, or any particular things that you're working on at the moment that you'd like to draw attention to the listeners, go for it. Oh, well, very kind. I mean, the easiest thing to do is go via the website, which is www.ideascentergroup.com. So go there. There's a whole bunch of case studies on there, a whole bunch of materials. You can get superheroes cards off there as well. Uh, it explains a whole range of things, and that's the easiest place to go. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. If people want to connect via LinkedIn, I'm more than happy to share material with you. And if it's peaked, if anything I've shared with you has piqued your interest and you want to find out more, just let me know. I'm more than happy to take you through it uh, and just explain how it works. It's good fun. It makes you smile. It does. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. And just for everybody, the, the, the show notes will feature all those links and also a transcript of this uh, podcast episode so that uh, you can catch up and pick pick any part out of it and re-listen at any time. So thank you very much, Dave. It's been fantastic. I've been really looking forward to this podcast. And to be honest, we could probably have a round two and three in due <laughs> course. But what I might do, if depending on whether you're up for it, is um, once this goes live, I tend to get some questions coming in and I'll have a like a question and answer episode. So I may yes. feed some of those back to you in due course. That'd be fine. Which would be great. That'd be a pleasure. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Dave. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, drop me a line at dave at sproutsweater.com if you do have any feedback or questions or any ideas for guests or content. Um, and in the meantime, sweat the right sprout and take care of yourself. I hope you've enjoyed your flight aboard Sprout One. For show notes and information on how to get the podcast feed direct to your Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other favorite podcast feed, visit SproutSweater.com. And touchdown.